So now I'd like to invite our guest preacher for this morning, Grant Gregory, to bring us a message from the Word of God. You look at lamentations, they cover particularly the laments and mournings of the people of God. If you look at Genesis, its origins and the history of the patriarchs, Romans, this doxology and glory of God, but they have a more limited and narrow focus. Where the Psalms, we can touch on war, on kingship, on parenthood, on childhood, on death, on joy, repentance, betrayal, the list could go on. And they do so, again, that's the, the unique matter of the Psalms, but they do it in a unique mode as well. They do it in symbols and poetry. The Psalms traffic in metaphor. Um, for example, in Psalm 68, right, when the psalmist wants to convey the, the patience and steadfastness and endurance and loving kindness of the Lord, in Psalm 68, he doesn't say, Praise the Lord who is patient and endurant and steadfast and faithful. He says, sing a song to the one who rides through deserts. And if you bet it, it evokes an image. What does that mean? Well, you get this picture of dryness and there's no water and it's hostile and it's not a place that you normally want to be riding through. 
and the Lord is one who rides through deserts. And so it evokes something in us. And so one of the, the medieval fathers of the church, kind of in his introduction to the Psalms, brings this together and actually says that the Psalms, because of this unique matter that they cover and this unique mode in which they do it, are, are unique in Scripture in that they, in their primary goal, are united to our ultimate goal. This is the language that maybe if you're, if you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechisms, or what is that chief end of man? Well, it's almost like this, this father of the church is saying that the chief end of the Psalms is to glorify God and enjoy him. It's to bring us into step with glorifying God and enjoying him and giving us language to do that. And so that the Psalms actually evoke something in us that's different than the rest of scripture does because it's more proximately connected to our chief end, right? Romans, he's, he's teaching us about God, but he's also getting support to go to Spain. There, there's, there's substant things, and we, we learn how to glorify God and enjoy him, but not quite in the same gut-wrenchingly evocative way that the Psalms can do. It, it, the proximate end, the proximate goal of the Psalms is more connected to our ultimate end, the glorifying of God. And so that is to say that the Psalms, when we, when we preach the Psalms, we start to actually kind of break apart something that is meant to be taken as a whole. And so just to flag that, that as we go through this, we're going to be pulling apart the Psalm. And then at the end, I'm actually going to read the Psalm again to kind of put it back together for us, that we might hear it as the Lord has conveyed it to us. So to start with, I'm going to open us with the reading of the Psalm. We'll go to prayer, and then we'll look at what the Lord has for us in Psalm 39. Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man, a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. And do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart 
and am no more. Let's pray. Blessed God, you are happy, perfectly content and at peace within yourself. You're not compelled or bound by anything as we are, but are totally transcendent. What a marvel it is, a marvel that as bound and wayward creatures, we cannot fully understand. So this morning, God, in the name of your Son, our Lord, we pray and praise you for that same Son, the Word who has been with you from the beginning, because in him we have seen and come to know you. We also praise you for your Word, the Scriptures, that we have, and because in them we have all we need or ever could need to come to know you and learn how to live a pattern and pattern our lives towards your glory. Heavenly Father, we too pray that through these scriptures this morning you will teach us that in the hearing of these words, they would be your words of life to your people, and that by them you would make us wise to your glory. We pray this in your name, God. Amen. Now, Psalm 39, even amongst the Psalms, is sort of a unique psalm. Right? Normally we can talk about psalms in certain categories. We can talk about um, lament psalms, where we're crying out to the God because of the pain that we're feeling, or psalms of confession and repentance, like Psalm 51, or wisdom psalms, like Moses teaching the people. Psalm 39 is a little unique in that it is a lament and repentance song couched in words of wisdom. So it is a wisdom song in that all the language that's being used is common language and common speech from Ecclesiastes and Job and Proverbs. It's, it's a wisdom psalm. But it, the psalmist is lamenting and praying and repenting with wisdom language. So this leads one commentator to call it an enigmatic psalm. A lot of the, the commentators don't really know how to like place it somewhere. And really Psalm 39 can be sort of structured and our move today is going to be structured around this repeated phrase that we saw. Um, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Right? In verse 5 and verse 11, the psalmist comes back to this, this surely mankind is a mere breath. And that word breath is the same word in Ecclesiastes that's used for vanity. So it's the same idea that like, everything is vanity under the sun. It's, it's a fleeting breath. And the structure of the psalm sort of moves from silence to speech to silence to speech. Right? He, he opens and he's resolved to be mute. He's resolved not to speak. But it gets too bad and so then he ends up talking again. But then under the discipline of the Lord, he goes back to not talking anymore. But it gets even worse. And so he talks again. So he's kind of a little fickle. He keeps saying, I'm not going to say anymore. And then keeps saying more. But in this movement... We're hearing the psalm, we're hearing the grief of a man who is under the discipline of the Lord, who is, is feeling the weight of that and is still trying to love the Lord. And so as we look at the psalm today, what we want to hold on to, what we want to kind of see as the theme of the song, is that the Lord disciplines his people towards wisdom in ways that may seem extreme to us now, because he is preparing us for something better than this earthly life. Let me say that again. The Lord disciplines his people towards wisdom in ways that may seem extreme to us now because he's preparing us for something better than this earthly life. So, so we see first in our text 
uh, this building up to verse 6, this, this first kind of conclusion. And in verses 1 through 3, he sort of gives us the context. Again, he's, he's resolved to be silent. He has done so even to extremes. He's put a muzzle on his mouth, right? This is somebody who's trying to, he, he knows that if he's not careful, he's going to speak. And this is wisdom. He's particularly doing this in the context of the wicked, right? He says in verse 2, I will do this so long as the wicked are in my presence. He is, even under the pain and discipline of the Lord, loyal to the Lord. He's trying not to bear false testimony against the unbelievers. This is wise. Psalm 73.15, another psalm of Asaph, gives this language where, again, under discipline, under suffering, he says, if I, I said, I will speak thus. So, right, if I, if I would have spoken, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. This idea that if we, if we complain about what the Lord is doing in our lives, if we begrudge the Lord in a way that's unbefitting of the believer in front of unbelievers, in front of the wicked, it gives them opportunity to scoff at our Lord. And so this impulse is wise. He's trying to hold his peace. But eventually it becomes too much, and the situation doesn't change. He's still under the discipline of the Lord. But verse 3 tells us here, my heart becomes hot within me. It's the sense that he just like can't hold it in anymore. He needs to groan to the Lord. And so he does so in wise, again, wise language. Verse 4 is, is it's a request of the Lord. He's, he's putting this frustration before the Lord as a request to teach him, right? It says, Lord, make me known my end. What is the measure of my days? This whole section is chalked through with language of, of wisdom literature. This make me know my end, right? That's what we talked about at the beginning is that what is the chief end of man? What, what is the end of this? What am I, what am I here for? this measure of my days. Not only how short is the life that I live, but also how do, I, how do I count what is worthwhile in a day? What do I look at a day and say this was a good day or a bad day? How do I measure my days? It is fleeting. It is a hand breath. It is nothing. It is mere. The psalmist is requesting wisdom from the Lord as he reminds himself what he has learned from other teachings of scripture. He knows that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And he wants and he desires to live this life in the presence of the Lord. He knows and he is aware that wisdom is wrought in the presence of the Lord. And this is the, the essential part to understand in this first part is that understanding the brevity of life, understanding how brief life is, is essential to wisdom. And all of this language that he's using, and all this language of let me know my end, help me measure my days, he's trying to drive home this idea that understanding the brevity of life is essential for wisdom. It's essential for wisdom because Often, if we're thinking about right and wrong, sin and guilt, we think about the things that we get away with. We hide our hearts from the people around us. And we walk astray in these things. And wisdom tells us that this life is brief, but that we hold account for this life in the next life. Wisdom tells us that we watch our ways, not in light of 
what we get away with in our spouses, what our friends don't hold us accountable to, what our pastor doesn't see. This is not the measure of our life. The measure of our life is the reckoning that we hold before the Lord in judgment. And so it is essential for wisdom to know the brevity of life. This is illustrated in Psalm 1, right? The more popular beginning that we're familiar with. Blessed is the man, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of the sinner, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. We're familiar with this. Who delights in the law of the Lord. This is the wise man. But at the end of the psalm, it reminds us, focuses on the end, and says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. It's this idea that wisdom reckons our final end, and that is seeing Jesus face to face. Similarly in Ecclesiastes, another book of wisdom, it's thinking about under the sun, and life under the sun is vanity. It's, it's vanity of vanities. But the end of the book, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, which it's an easy memorization. It's just 12, 13, 14. It's easy to remember that one. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty, right? Duty, end, chief end of man. It's the whole end and duty of man is to fear God, keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It is essential for wisdom to reckon with the brevity of life. This is a great challenge for sinners. This is not something we're naturally prone to do. It's a call to repentance for both the believer and the unbeliever. And maybe it can feel particularly pertinent to young people. Young people are not disposed to think about the shortness of our lives. We don't have aches and pains. We don't, we have, at least in theory, two or three, like two-thirds of our life left. We aren't reckoning with death. Especially in a day and age where young people often don't see a dead person until they're fully grown. Death is not in our culture. And so we're not reckoning with death. So this is a call for young people to know their end, to know that they will see the Lord and to walk in wisdom before him. It's also a call for older saints. Phrases that we traffic in our culture, um, we talk about parents or grandparents, set in their ways. How grandpa's a little set in his ways. He kind of does things the way that he wants to. We shy away from talking about those things. We have a sense that, that people that are older in age, even in middle age, right? Really, it's once they hit their 40s. People have settled into patterns and lifestyles that they will maintain. But age can at times bring a comfort that will dull us to the call of the Lord. That sanctification is an ongoing process that the Lord is teaching us throughout because we will all give an account of our lives to the Lord. It's a great challenge that we understand the brevity of life, that we may be wise and live lives in light of eternity. But the psalm doesn't end there. 
right? We still have this, this idea of wisdom that he's reckoning with, but he's reckoning with it because he's under discipline, because the Lord is disciplining him. And so he moves on in verses 7 through 11. He says, and now, O Lord, what do I wait? It's this, it's this honest question sometimes that if we do reckon with how short our lives are, if we do reckon with how quick this goes, why, what is the point of me suffering so much if my life is so short? The essence of this section is summarized uh, by commentator Derek Kigner. Um, he writes, the burning question of the psalm is why God should so assiduously, assiduously discipline a creature as frail and fleeting as man. If our life is so short, if it's so fleeting, why does God discipline us for our sins? And does it so, uh, why does it hurt so much when the Lord does it? Why is it not an easy rebuke that goes quickly? Why does it bear down on us? Right? We see the weight that the psalmist is under. That here again, he, he is mute. Right? He says, I am mute. I cannot open my mouth. He says, remove your stroke from me. I'm spent. He, he is exhausted. And it's a different type of muteness than we see in the first couple of verses. Right? Initially, he's resolved to silence. But he's resolved as like an act of the will. It's a wise act of the will. where he, he knows it's not good to profane the Lord in front of the wicked. And so he's trying not to. But by the time we get to verses 9 and 10, he's silent because he can't speak. Not only does wisdom, understanding the brevity of life essential for wisdom, but wisdom calls us to understand suffering in light of the brevity of life. The psalmist is desperate to sin no more. He doesn't want to bear another punishment. He understands that his plight is even laughable, that he is supposed to be this righteous man who fears the Lord. And he's saying, don't make me a scorn of the fool, but keep me from my sins so that I don't have to do, undergo this discipline again. And the mockers laugh at me. He's weary in his silence. You can almost hear Job-like echoes in verses 9 and 10. You can hear Job saying, remove your stroke from me, God. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. You can hear Job having lost his children, his land, his wealth, crying out, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Indeed, Job does say that. Job 7.7 7 says, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. It's this wisdom reckoning with the end of things and the discipline of the Lord. Wisdom comes from understanding the brevity of life. Wisdom calls us to reckon suffering in light of the brevity of life. But he doesn't end it there. He doesn't leave us with nothing. And likely, in verses 12 through 13, the psalmist might have not even been intending to offer a word of hope. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. 
for I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. This word sojourner, he probably doesn't reckon this as a word of hope. But on this side of Christ, the author of Hebrews picks this up as a word of hope and encouragement to the people of God. In Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, looking back at the patriarchs at people like Asaph, the author says, those who died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, they were sojourners on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, Asaph is seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out of, they would have gone back. They would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The sojourning identity, this reckoning of suffering in light of eternity, is a great comfort to sin, to sufferers. In the same way that reckoning our lives in light of eternity, the brevity of life, is a great challenge for sinners, the sojourning identity for the church is actually a great comfort for sufferers. Because we know that we walk in a line of those who have sojourned before us. We walk in the line of Abraham and Isaac, of Joseph, of Asaph, of David. We also know that we follow and are in one who sojourned. That our Lord Jesus Christ sojourned and wandered this earth as an exile. He did not have a place to lay his head. He too was mute under the weight of punishment. Not a punishment of his own sins though. We bear the burdens and disciplines of our sins. But our Lord had no sins. He bore the discipline and punishment for ours. Matthew 26, 62, before Caiaphas. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Matthew 27, Jesus is before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Finally on the cross, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, and the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Jesus makes no response. Jesus bears the wrath of the Father. And so this sojourning identity, this reckoning of our sufferings in light of the brevity of life reminds us that these punishments, these disciplines that the Lord puts on us are not retributive. They aren't our shortcomings. They aren't because we earn our salvation. We reckon before the Lord standing in the blood of the Lamb, right? We talked, we sang the song, Nothing But the Blood of the Lamb. We stand in the blood of the one who bore our sin and sorrows, mute, offering no defense for himself. These punishments that we bear are refining 
and preparatory. When we reckon our sufferings in light of the brevity of life, we see, and in the Lord's providence, it was our reading today, that as Peter reminds us in our first epistle, we see that the punishments, the disciplines are refining and preparatory. Because in this we rejoice now for a little while, that if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Psalm 39, with this wise lament, sitting in silence, calling out to the Lord in speech, is teaching us that wisdom requires us to reckon with the brevity of life, and that when we reckon our sufferings in light of the brevity of life, we see that the Lord is preparing us for eternity. The Lord disciplines his people towards wisdom in ways that might seem extreme to us now because he's preparing us for something better. We are sojourners and exiles. He's preparing a city for us. And in our disciplines, we are being prepared for that city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often cannot bear the weight that you put on us. We sin and are grieved. You correct us as a good father. We see a world full of sin, death, under the reign of the devil. We can feel crushed. But you remind us that wisdom looks to a better day, a better city, a better kingdom. A kingdom in which the lamb is on the throne. And so we pray today that you would teach us wisdom. That you would guide us in our secret heart by your spirit. That we might live lives in light of eternity into your glory. Help us to measure our days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for a closing hymn.